So this past week, I came across a philanthropy program that was just really intriguing, all right? So this program is called the Graduation Program, all right? So historically, there's little evidence that shows that external aid for those impoverished countries actually helps bring them out of their poverty, all right? So in 2002, there's this new program, the Graduation Program, that was started to try something a little bit different. It's the idea of, like, you don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over and over, expecting different results. So they, they're wanting to go and try something new. And so the whole goal of this program is that it's in the title of the name that they would graduate, these people would graduate out of poverty. And so it's a 24-month program, and it all starts by giving a person or a family livestock, all right? So this family gets a cow, or they'll get a few goats, a few chickens, maybe a swarm of bees. And so after they get this, they, for the next 24 months, they receive coaching in how to raise up this livestock. And then they also get a small stipend to just enough to where this family doesn't either kill the livestock or sell the livestock for their own personal gain. So the whole 24 months, they can continue out through this whole entire program. These people go and help them open up bank accounts to where whenever they get the milk from the livestock or they get the, the honey from the bees, that they go sell it in the marketplace. They actually have a place to go put the money to build up a life savings for themselves. And then over the course of that whole 24 months, they get regular coaching in order to help them with the reinforce of uh, raising up the livestock and then saving practices in their own life. And so the whole idea behind this is kind of the saying, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, but then you, get, you teach a man how to fish, you teach him how to, or you feed him for the rest of his life. And so the results of this have actually been really strong. So 2015 is whenever some of the results started coming back. They were recorded in Science Magazine. So six different countries participated in this program, 21,000 people a part of the program. Some of the, the different countries saw really large dividends that happened. In India, for instance, the economic return was 433%. That's like, Huge, right? Like, that's, hey, that's, this is working. This is really good. Now, here's the question that I had that, as I was reading about this, other people had as well, is why? Why, if you give a person a cow, do you see such large, like, success rates with helping them graduate out of poverty? Why, instead of just getting handouts of money or getting a box of food and supplies, what makes this program so successful over the normal external aid that people have received? And Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times concludes it's this. It's the power of hope. Here's what he says. Whether in America or India, families that are stressed and impoverished trapped in cycles of poverty, can feel a hopelessness that becomes self-fulfilling. Give people reason to hope that they can achieve a better life, and that too can be self-fulfilling. So we're working through this book of Genesis. We're now through chapter four. We're getting through chapter five, and it feels rather bleak, all right? So here's how I felt coming to you over the course of the last two chapters. It feels like I'm just coming bringing in a hammer because we're seeing just the weightiness of sin, all right? So it feels like I get over halfway through the sermon, I've just like sucked the life out of this place because I've just hit you with just how deep our sin runs. Humanity, over the course of the last two chapters, just seems trapped in this 
endless cycle of sin, that it's just this downward cycle, this, this spinning circle that's like going down and down and down. Last week we looked at the line of Cain and we saw the pattern of the human heart, right? That our heart tends towards pride, that we have a tendency of altering God's design, that we diminish the value of human life. This is the pattern that we saw in Cain's life, but we also see it in us. If you want more of a idea of that, go back and listen to last week and you can explore that with us. But the passage that we're looking tonight, though, is meant to instill some hope in us. Genesis chapter five, it's a genealogy. You're like, how are we supposed to get hope from a genealogy? Just a list of names. But it's a deep dive into the family line of Seth that we looked at a little bit last week. It's 10 total generations that spans from Adam to Noah. And you see a pattern as the writer is going through each of these generations and is explaining the family cycle that's happening. There's at least seven different sequences that you see. So you see a person's name, you see their age, you see the son that they had, You see the additional years that they lived. You see the other children that they had, their total lifespan, and then ultimately that their life ended in death. So here's an example in verses six through eight. Seth, the name, was 105 years old age when he fathered Enosh, his son. Seth lived 807 years after he fathered Enosh additional years, and he fathered other sons and daughters, his other children. So Seth's life lasted 912 years, total lifespan, and then he died. This is the sequence that you see over and over over the course of 10, 10 different generations throughout this genealogy. But this pattern is broken three times, all right? You see it with Adam at the very beginning. You see it with Enoch in the middle. And at the very end, you see it with the line of Noah. And so it's in these three exceptions that I think you see these glimpses of hope that like my heart has been yearning for as we've walked through Genesis 3 and 4. And so in a world marred with sin, we see the hope of purpose, the hope of life, and the hope of release here in Genesis chapter 5. So here's what we're going to do, all right? We're going to spend our time just looking at these three different exceptions. That's why Preston just kind of read these three different sections. Those are the three exceptions that we see here in Genesis 5. We'll explore these glimpses of hope, of purpose, and life, and relief, and then we'll close it out by piecing it all together, all right? So let's start with Adam and the hope of purpose. We see this in verses 1 through 5. Let me read it to refresh you after we've kind of worked in through these different pieces. Let me read it so we can be refreshed, right? This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and when they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. So right there is where we kind of see this differentiation that's happened. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years and then he died. All right, where this stands out is that Adam has retained the Imago Dei, all right? 
verses one through two are basically a summation of what Genesis one and two are, that man is created in the very image of God. So this is reaffirmed about Adam here in Genesis chapter five. Then in verse three, you see that Adam has a son, that he fathered a son in his likeness according to his image. So this image-bearing identity that Adam has has now been passed off to his son. And this is significant because there is a lot of purpose that is wound up in this idea of being created in God's image. So remember back with me to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We worked a little bit more holistically through this. The Imago Dei means two things. That we're created in God's image and that we're created in his likeness, all right? So that you are created in God's image means that you have the highest revelation of God in creation. When people, when creation looks at you and other people look at you, they are reminded that God is real. All of creation is an expression of divine thought, but you are on a different level. When people look at you, there is something about you that communicates to a watching world that God is real. But not only are you created in God's image, you're also created in his likeness, that there are certain attributes about you that model who God is. For instance, like God, you express dominion over creation. So God speaks creation into existence. He's the one that holds it all in Uh, He holds it all together by his very word. But the way that he's created us in his likeness, over all of creation, he's placed us above it so that we exercise dominion over it, over the animals, over the land, over the water, over the plants. We exercise in likeness of God dominion over creation. Like God, we're also created relational. We believe that God is a Trinitarian God. He's one God in three persons. We saw this back in Genesis chapter 1. When he says to himself that they are going to create God, he says, let us create man in our own image. We are hardwired for relationships. Before this world was even created, God existed in perfect fellowship amongst himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are created in his likeness, and so we are created for relationships. When we're not in relationship, we fail being human because we are created in his likeness. And as God's image bears, he also gives us a mandate that we are to be fruitful and multiply. So here's what this means. That you, image God, shows that you have intrinsic dignity, value, significance, and worth. Every person that is seated here in this room was created with worth and value. God looks at you, says, you are my image bearer, and I honor you. You have worth, you have value to me. That you are like God speaks to your ability, that above all the rest of creation, that there is something about you that whenever you model and you live in this world, you have intrinsic capabilities that no other piece of creation can exert but you. That God has called you to participate in his work shows that you have immense purpose. And look, all of this is retained even after the fall. This is God's kindness and this is God's grace to us, a gift that we do not deserve. In our sin, we reject God's glory for our own and we look for fulfillment not in God but in his gifts. That's what happens. And look, we get the sense of the sting that this caused in God because we experience it in our own life as well. All right, so 
this idea of glory, that we steal God's glory. You've had instances where you've, you've experienced this, right? When somebody stole the limelight from you, when they stole the spotlight from you, whether it was your birthday party when you were a little kid, like the, someone, one of your friends comes and he like steals the show, all the light is supposed to be on you, but they kind of steal all of the uh, exposure that's happening in the room. Like you get angry, right? That happens. Or whenever you have like this a big announcement and someone one-ups you, or you have like, uh, like these big accomplishments that you want to share with other people. And then you have your friend that comes in and is like, I became president. And it's like, you suck. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, these are things that we, we hate. People have stolen our glory. We've looked at God and we said, I don't want to live for your glory. I'm going to live for my own. We also experience this idea of being rejected when we've gone through breakups, Right? What happens in a breakup? Essentially, here's what someone's saying to you. You're not what I'm looking for, and I'm not satisfied in my relationship with you. That's what happened at the fall whenever you and I sinned. We said, I want your gift over you, God, because I believe your gift is going to provide me the fulfillment that you can't provide me. In our sin, we look at the creator and say, I will not live for you, and you cannot provide me the fulfillment that I want and need. But look, we see here that in the kindness and the grace of God that we retain, that we are created in God's image. So here's what I want you to take away from this, all right? Look, God is more committed to your good than you are. God is more committed to your good than even you are. As selfish and self-centered as every single one of us in this room are, God cares more deeply about your good than you ever could fathom in your own life. Look, you re- essentially, here's what we can see in this passage. God is basically saying this, you rejected me, but I'm not rejecting you. I, you don't want me, I want you though. I'm not giving up on you. you the, the very purpose that I created you for, like it is going to continue as you live throughout the rest of this world. Not because that's how desperate God is, but that's because how loving he is of us. That we get to continue on with this image bearing of him. Look, there's hope here, right? And the cycle that we've seen of just this downward spiral of sin in the midst of all of this Adam is reaffirmed that he bears the image of God. You have purpose. You have significance. You have value. God is committed to your good. There's hope here, right? So that's the first wave of hope that we are hit with throughout this genealogy. We find the second one in the second disruption with the life of Enoch in 21 through 24. So let me refresh this. Here's what it says. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. And look at this. Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. All right, so two things stand out here about Enoch. He walked with God in that he never tasted death. So this gives us hope in a couple, of reasons, a couple of ways, all right? The first one is this. There's hope that fellowship with God is possible, right? Enoch walked with God. Enoch enjoyed a supernatural, intimate fellowship with God. 
Enoch personally experienced God in this life. It wasn't just something that he knew a lot of facts about God, and it wasn't that he just lived a pious life in this world by what it says that he walked with God. No, he knew and he experienced the goodness and the love of God in his life. Yet he did walk a pious life. He did walk in fellowship with God because he knew, look, he knew God's heart. He knew what God valued. He knew what God loved. And so Enoch, having experienced the goodness and love of God, said, I'm going to place at the priority of my life the things that God values and loves. And those things are going to be the things that I chase after in this life. We know that this is true because we get a few instances about Enoch's life later in the New Testament. So Jude 14 through 15, Jude is Jesus' brother. Here's what he says about Enoch, that Enoch prophesied in his day about the evil words and deeds of the people. Essentially, here's what happened. Enoch, knowing who God is, walking with God, knowing the values that God had, the love that was about God, the goodness of God, the way that he heard people speak of him and the way that people acted, he went and prophesied and said, that's not who God is. This isn't the way to fulfillment in this world Follow God. Submit yourself to this God. He is a personable God. He's a good and loving God. He will meet you if you draw near to him. This is what Enoch is going about in his day prophesying. He's, because he's experienced this. He's experienced the goodness of this God. And then Hebrews 11 says, before Enoch was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. So God looked at his life and he said, this is a man that is pursuing the things that I love. And so he looked at his life with approval. So yes, he lived a pious life, but it's because he knew what God loved. He knew what God valued. He had experienced the beauty of who this God was. And again, we see here God's kindness, all right? Yes, we retain purpose and value and worth here, but we're not just pawns in God's big scheme. He longs for a relationship with you. Like, that's the hope that we can pull out that Enoch walked with God. A few weeks ago, we talked about how our souls are restless until this relationship with God is fixed. We were created for this relationship. And so we should look that Enoch walked with God and we should say, praise God. That God still longs not just to have his value and his purposes worked out in our life, but he wants a relationship with me. That's what we see in Enoch's life, that he walked with God. But we also see that Enoch was taken away by God. So all the patterns broken in Genesis 5, this disruption may be the one that stands out to us the most. All right, so here's what it says. Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. Look, death is our greatest fear in life, is it not? It's our greatest fear. One of the pastors that I was reading this, this past week, he put it death like this. It's the greatest interruption because death tears loved ones away from one another. Every one of us have experienced this in this room, right? Maybe varying different levels, but we've all experienced the, the tearing away of someone that we love here in this world. Death is also a great schism. It rips apart the material from the immaterial. So when someone passes, it takes soul away from body. That's not how we were created. 
body and soul are so created to go together that whenever death happens, it rips the two apart. That's not how God created our, our bodies and our souls to work, but that's what death does. It inflicts this great separation, this great schism between material and immaterial. It's also the great insult, all right? So it brings, death brings decay to the Imago Dei. Shakespeare, in one of his uh, plays, talked about how we as humans, when we die, we just become worm food. All the value, all the purpose, all the significance and worth that you are created with when you die, you just become worm food. What an insult, right? And then ultimately, death is the greatest enemy because no one can escape it. Yet, in a long line of then he died throughout this whole entire chapter, we get a then he was not there. And this disruption of Enoch's life gives us hope that death does not have the final say, right? That life and not death gets the final word for those that walk with God in this life. R.C. Sproul puts it like this, life is so precious that there beats within every human heart a hope that there will be victory over the grave. Every single one of us feels that, right? When you think about your loved ones, when you think about your own life, there's this beating in your heart that, the, that death and the grave will not have the final say over your life. Well, we look at Enoch and we get hope here because death didn't seize him. God took him. And so look, step back for a second. Are you tasting the hope that's here in Genesis 5, right? Like you, you've retained significance and worth and value. You are still an image bearer of God. What a gift. I have purpose in this life. I, I have a hope that God still wants a relationship with me through the, the life of Enoch. I still have hope that death will not have the final say over me as I walk in relationship with God here in this world. There's hope here. Well, we see one final disruption in the pattern that happens in verses 28 through 32, and it's between the life of Lamech and his son Noah. And here's what it says. Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son. And he named him Noah, saying, this one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Lamech lived 595 years after he fathered Noah, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Lamech's life lasted 770 years, then he died. Noah was 500 years old, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth, which will continue for us next week as we look at the life of Noah. So here we see the final disruption of Genesis 5. And this is a different Lamech than what we saw in Genesis chapter 4, all right? They are signaling two different things to us. So Lamech of Genesis 4 shows what we are capable of, how deeply infected our hearts are with sin. What Lamech did, every single one of us are capable of. But in Genesis 5, we get a different Lamech because it, he signals to us what God is capable of, which is relief from the curse. That's what we get here, all right? So we see hope of relief from the curse in Lamech in the way that he names his son Noah, all right? This is the only name in all of Genesis 5 that we get any type of 
uh, translation of what the name means. And here's what the name means. It means rest or comfort. All right. So when Lamech names Noah and then we get his prayer, this one will bring us relief. It means that he will give us rest or he will give us comfort from the curse. And so, look, Lamech has lived a lot of life, 182 years, right? I mean, mind-blowing to any of us. It seems small in the grand scale of all the other names that we've seen here in Genesis chapter 5, but 182 years, that's a lot of life. He's witnessed just that how evil and wicked have spread throughout humanity in this world, all right? We see in Genesis 6, 5, so we'll look at this next week, but this is just the air of what was going on in their lifetime. Human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. He's experienced just how wicked and evil human beings are, and they've spread throughout the world. He's also experienced the difficulty of work. That's why he says the agonizing labor of our hands. And so look, as he names Noah and he, you hear this prayer, it's a cry for a redeemer. That's what's happening here with Lamech and his son Noah. He's crying out, God, give us relief from this curse. I believe in the hope of the promise of Genesis 3.15. And I believe that you're going to bring this about through my son. Now, here's the thing. The previous disruptions that are given to us are just a taste of hope, and they're not the final experience of it, all right? We taste hope in all of these disruptions, but they're not the finality of all of it. So Adam retains the Imago Dei. We see that Seth is born in Adam's likeness and image, all right? So this means the passing down of the Imago Dei. Yes, we all have the, the identity as God's image bears, but that he is created in Seth, in Adam, Seth is created in Adam's likeness and image means not only does he get the identity of being an image bearer, he also gets original sin. He gets a sinful nature, which means he's prone to sin. So there's not like this mending back together of what's been broken yet. Then you look at the life of Enoch. Enoch did not taste death, but he's only one of two people throughout all of the Bible that have never tasted death. All right, so the conclusion here is that they are just a break in the pattern. They're not a fix to the broken reality that every single one of us experience. And the same holds true of Noah, all right? So there's big hopes that Lamech has for Noah. He's going to bring relief from the curse. And there's a taste of this. But how does it happen? We all know the story, right? God floods the earth. And so there is a removal of the evil and wickedness of human beings and sin because why? He removes humanity. But we're going to look at this in the coming weeks. It doesn't last. It's temporal. It's temporary. It doesn't, it's not something that is a fix to our broken world. It's just a temporary relief. And so look, the genealogy of Genesis 5 gives us a taste of hope, but it's not the finality of it. Here's the good news for us, though. Thankfully, we get a better genealogy in Luke chapter 3. All right? Here's what Luke chapter 3 has to say. As he began in his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Canaan. Look at, look at these names, all right? Son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad. I had to practice that one. Son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech. Son of Methuselah, you remembering some of these names? Son of Enoch, 
son of Jared, son of Mahalalel. I had to practice that one too. Son of Canaan, son of Enos or Enosh, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. The hope we taste in Genesis 5 is fully realized in Jesus of Luke chapter 3. Adam was created in God's image. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? You look at the life of Jesus. Enoch walked with God and was taken by God. Jesus too walked with God and he didn't taste or he... He, his life was not taken from him either. What happens in John 10? What does Jesus say about himself? No one takes his life from him. He lays it down, right? Through Noah, the world experiences temporary relief, but how? Through the condemning of the world. What happens with Jesus? We get definite relief from the curse because through Jesus, God saves the world, Right? Jesus is the greater Noah. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. That's what he says of himself in John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So look, Genesis chapter 5 is an appetizer of the hope that we have. Jesus is the full course meal. Everything in Jesus, all of our greatest hopes, all of our deepest longings are met in Jesus. You want freedom from sin? Then you look at the cross of Jesus. You want fellowship with God? Then you look at the regeneration, the rebirth that happens in Jesus. You want victory over death? Then you look at the resurrection of Jesus. You want relief from the curse? Then you look with anticipation to the coming kingdom of Jesus. That's where you get it. It's the fulfillment that we see of the hope that we have here in Genesis 5. So look, this should beg us to ask, well, how do I secure this hope? How do I get security of this hope? If it's just this taste in Genesis 5, we get the fulfillment in Jesus, how do I secure it? And throughout all the Bible, it's simply just belief. Belief in who Jesus is. And in essence, it's like you go all in on Jesus, believing who he said he was, believing what he did on your behalf, if your life is like this poker game, instead of just giving chips away to, I have a lot, I've gathered a lot of things that may earn like a, a, God may want me because of all that I've accomplished in this life, or look how closely I've followed God's commands, and so I'm going to place my chips here. No, you don't do any of that. You go all in, all of your chips, all of your life, believing who this Jesus is and everything that he has done for you. This belief in Jesus saying, I am not turning to anyone or anything or any other besides Jesus for the hope that I will have a right relationship with God. This is Jesus calling one of my favorite stories in the Bible. So Mark chapter 5, there's a dad named Jairus that comes looking for Jesus to save his dying daughter. And on the way, as he's going, there, if you've read through it, you know that there's other circumstances that happen that get Jesus like stopped up and so he doesn't get there quickly as he's still on his way with Jairus. It's reported to Jesus that the girl has died. All right, so like imagine being Jairus here. All right, this is your daughter. This is the girl that's created in God's image. You can imagine just the hopes and desires and the dreams that Jairus had for his little daughter. 
And then the greatest enemy that every one of us experience, death, snatches this little girl away from him. He goes to Jesus seeking relief from the curse, right? She has sickness. She's on her deathbed. He goes in a last-ditch effort to Jesus, come and save my daughter, come heal my daughter. Jesus goes, news that the daughter is dead. Can you imagine the devastation that just strikes this man? But what does Jesus do in the midst of this news? He looks to Jairus and he says, don't be afraid, but only believe. Then Jesus shows us why we are to believe in him. We're to place all of our chips in. We go all in on Jesus, all, who he is, the power, the ability, the things that he does in our place is all shown to us because of what he does with this little girl. Jesus goes into the house. He sees people crying. There's hysteria that's going on. He tells the crowd that the girl's just sleeping and they laugh at him. And then Jesus goes into the room and he takes the girl by the hand and he commands her to wake up. And what happens? She does. One of my favorite ways, or one of the things, uh, I found a picture that I think perfectly depicts the belief that Jesus is speaking of here. And so it should show up on the screen. And so here's a, a headstone that a dad made for his son. And what you can see here, um, what happened with Jairus' daughter, Jesus takes her by the hand, tells her to wake up, and she does. His little boy didn't experience. His little boy that I don't know what the sickness was that happened in his life, but it bound him to a wheelchair. And the father's hope, the father's belief, is that when his son passed away, that it was as if he's just tasting a, a, a light nap because he believes that his son is in the hand of this Jesus. And so whenever he tastes death, when he falls into this nap, it's not that he's fleeing this world where he experienced the full reality of everything that this dad had hoped and dreamed for his son, this son that bared the image of God, this son that he had big dreams for, this son that he felt like death just captured his son away, the loss and the, the things that broke his heart, he realizes, he places his belief in this Jesus that when his son tastes death, look, he's released from his wheelchair. Like whenever he, he sees his son pass away from this life to go into the next, he knows that he's actually entering what is real, true, genuine life. He has fellowship with God, unhindered fellowship with God. Everything about this little boy, all the things that were broken in this world have been put back together again because he's in the presence of Jesus. He knows that heaven is a place that wheelchairs are not allowed. There's belief here. You see this? And look, this is what God is, this is what Jesus is inviting all of us to. All the hopes of Genesis chapter five that are just a foretaste are finally realized in Jesus. When we place all of our chips in, when we say, I'm believing, I'm giving everything that I have to Jesus, 
There's nothing else. There's no other place that I'm going to turn to for hope. There's no other place that even whenever I get the cancer diagnosis that can steal my hope because I believe that whenever I taste death, it's but a mere nap because I'm in the hands of Jesus. And whenever I go see him face to face, he's going to put me fully back together that I will get a resurrected body just as Jesus has whenever he comes back again, that I will go and enter into a place where heaven comes to earth and all the brokenness that is here is finally and definitively done away with and there will no longer be any more disease. There will no longer be any more pain. I will be in the presence of the living God forever, finally put back together again and I will experience the goodness of this God that Enoch did, not just in shadows or hints, but in the full spectrum that God desires to be with us. That's the hope here. It's not just a taste of Genesis chapter five. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And so look, believe. Maybe for the very first time tonight, Maybe for you, it's like I've never fully placed all of my chips in with Jesus. I've held on to this hope that I'm good enough whenever I see God face to face that he'll want me and that he'll accept me in. Maybe it's because of the family you've come through and you're just hoping that their faith is what's going to get you in. No, place your faith in Jesus, who he is, who he claimed himself to be. What he has done on your behalf, he went and willingly died in your place and grave could not contain him. He rose three days later. He is seated at the right hand of God alive. That's your hope. Everything that he's done for me, nothing that I could ever do for myself. For those of us that have been walking with Jesus, maybe for a few years, maybe for a long time, continue to believe in Jesus. Look, there's nothing that can snatch this joy away from you. There's nothing that this world can threaten you with that can pluck you out of the hand of God. There's only depths that you can go deeper in your realization and experience of this love that was shown to you by God sending his son Jesus to live and die and be resurrected in your place. That's the hope that you have. There's nobody and there's nothing that can snatch it away from you. So believe. Believe in him. Believe in him. Look, we get the hope of purpose here. You have intrinsic value. God has created you with dignity and worth. There's hope of life here that we get to live with the living God, that we will, death will not have the final say in our life, that there's going to be a release from, relief from the curse because of who this Jesus is, but its ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus himself. You get to taste it, you get to experience it, you get to walk with him here and now. And we wait with anticipation when this will be our final definitive reality when he comes again. Amen, Christian? Let's pray.